You are listening to Riverhouse Church's Sermon of the Week. We hope this talk equips and inspires you. Awesome. Well, tonight, if you've been here the last few weeks, Jordan spoke three weeks ago about joy um, and just kind of that life of abundant joy. And then the next week, he talked about hope and uh, Christmas morning hope and how we should kind of live in that posture uh, of Christmas morning hope as Christians. And then uh, AJ last week uh, kind of talked on joy as well and how we don't take vacations to joy, but it's actually a place that we live in continually. And he kind of talked about entitlement and how entitlement robs us of joy and all amazing messages. Um, if you didn't listen to him, I would encourage you to go online and listen to him. But I'm going to kind of piggyback off that. Um, when I was preparing for this, I really felt like the Lord, Isaiah 66 says that the Lord is rendering recompense to his enemies. And I really feel that's what he's been doing last week and continued this week. And what I mean by that is that he's rendering recompense to the enemies, that to his enemies. And his enemies are anything that keep us back from the life of abundant joy, peace, hope, right? Anything that keeps us from living in that posture is an enemy of the Lord because Jesus did purchase it on the cross for us to live in the fullness. However, it's a tension, right? We live in this tension of the already. Jesus says that the kingdom's at hand, right? That you pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. But at the same time, we live in this tension that it's not yet because we still have pain, right? <laughs> we still have sickness. We still have disappointment. We still don't always live in this place of abundant hope, Christmas morning hope, abundant joy, right? And so there's this like tension that we live in. And if you know me personally, I absolutely hate tension. I'm an extremist, so like I like to just, okay, this is the answer, and I'll just camp out here until I die type thing. Like I'll read John 15, and it'll talk about abiding in the vine, and I'm like, yes, this is the answer. Like all I have to do is abide and just rest in him and just hide away in the secret place with him. But then at the same time, then it's like, then you kind of get slapped with like, okay, but yeah, he's also called you to go like heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out the demons. And you're also called to go be a witness, and he has works prepared for you in advance, and you're his co-labor, right? So there's like this tension. Everything, if you don't like to live in tension, you should be a Christian, I think, because it's like, it's ultimate tension. As soon as I feel like I like have it, then it's like, oh, but there's also this, so don't float, don't float too far into the extreme, right? It's the word and power tension that, that so often we live in. Is it all, all about the word or is it all about experiences, right? And how do you live in the tension of what this says and also what I experience, right? So there's always this tension, and I think it's a tension that we live in in pursuit of this and when we talk about joy and hope because Jesus did finish it on the cross and everything that needed victory over, he had victory over in that moment. However, we don't always see it. And so I think that's kind of a little bit of how I want to frame the message tonight is, you know, we live in this posture, however, this abundant life, however, there are enemies that keep us. And we have to be willing to look back and say, okay, yeah, I experience joy and I live in this hopeful place. But like the reality is that there's still things in my life that hold me back from living in that place to the utmost. And I think it's naive to just say, yeah, no, Jesus died. I'm like full of joy, full of hope, full of peace. Well, does your life look like it? Do your relationships look like it? Like you have to be willing to be honest with yourself and look back kind of in the, the trail of your life and be like, does the trail I leave look like peace and hope and joy? And so tonight, what kind of I want to go after is self-protection. I believe that 
there's no greater joy. There's no greater peace and there's no greater hope when you're full, until you're fully known. There's, there's no greater joy than being fully known. And fully known, you know, you can't get to know me secondhand. Being known can't be done secondhand. You, my mom could sit down and have coffee with you and she could tell you every single thing about me. The details of my life, the things that I like, the things that I don't like, the things that I've done, the places I've been. However, you know facts about me, but you don't know me because to know somebody requires intimacy and you can't get intimacy from a third party. It doesn't work like that. And what self-protection does is self-protection comes and it inhibits us from being known because it inhibits intimacy in our lives. When we choose to self-protect, we actually give a stiff arm to intimacy, whether it be with people or with God, and it actually keeps us in a position where, where we, don't, we never have intimacy in our life, and so we're never known, never truly known. Even with God, you know, I have this, God's all-knowing, right? He knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. However, in the Gospels, it says that Jesus says that many of you will come to me and you say, Jesus, look, like I casted out the demons, I raised the dead, I did all these miraculous things. And then he said, I'll say to you, depart from me, for I never knew you. And that should be like a little bit disturbing, because if he's all-knowing, then how did he not know them? And I would propose that in the same way that when Jesus was born, he was born a baby, right? God himself stepped off his throne, humbled himself to be born of a woman, he limited himself in his ability. He had to learn how to walk again. He had to learn how to talk. He created language, but yet he limited himself so that he had to learn language, that he had to learn social dynamics, that he had to learn how to become a carpenter. And in the same way, I think God limits himself from what he knows of our lives. Yeah, he's all-knowing, but does he know? I think the only things that he, really, that he knows are the things that you allow him to know by bringing it to him. We're often like, God, I have this big area in my life and I have this huge need. Why haven't you met it? And I think sometimes God's like, well, I didn't even know it was there. You never told me about that. Well, you're like, well, God, I have this big, you know, this big in insecurity in my life that like I need healed. And God's like, well, have you ever brought it to me? I think God sits there and, and he He's all-knowing, however, I think there might be an aspect of him that he actually limits himself for the sake of relationship, for the sake of intimacy. That we actually become intimate with God by bringing ourselves to him and allowing him to know us by us telling him about ourselves. In the same way that I would get to know one of you guys, I couldn't know you unless you came and you let me know you, and you told me about yourself, right? In self-protection, it hinders that. When we choose to self-protect, we push away intimacy, and you can't be known apart from intimacy. You can't be known by a third party. It doesn't work like that. Throughout the Bible, you, you see these examples of self-protection, too. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's, it's full of self-protection acts, right? <laughs> but there's three in particular that I want to talk about. Um, you know, God used these different vehicles, per se, to which give <clears throat> Israel or Moses or Adam and Eve an opportunity at intimacy to be known and to know. 
And several times they chose self-protection. And, and you know, as, as I talk about these, I, I wonder how the story would be different if they didn't choose to self-protect. For example, in the garden, you know, Adam and Eve created in God's image and likeness. They're walking around in the cool of day. God's walking by. Says they're naked and completely unashamed before him. And then the serpent comes and Eve and Adam, they both eat the fruit. And the, the next thing they do is they hear God coming and so they go and they grab fig leaves and they sew them together and they put them on and they cover themselves. And they step back and they hide from God. And God starts calling out, where are you? Like, where are you? I wonder how the story would be different in that moment, whereas when they fell into sin, rather than choosing to self-protect and go cover themselves with figs and to hide from God, what if they would have taken a step the other direction towards God and said, God, yeah, I fell short of your glory, but here I am still naked. I wonder how the story would have been different if rather than self-protecting and saying, no, I'm going to hide because of my shortcomings, what if you would have stepped into him and allowed God to see him? Same goes for our lives. We have moments of shortcomings. We have moments of sin, let's be honest. Whether big, small, it doesn't matter. And so oftentimes, shame says, go get some fig leaves, sew them together, cover them up, and hide away. And it's not just hide from God, but it's also hide from people. Go self-protect, because if they see that, And we all have these options throughout our day that like when we fall short, which we all do, are we going to go sew fig leaves together or are we going to actually take a step in the other direction and allow the people in our lives to see us naked and unashamed even though we have this blemish? It's the difference between a life of choosing self-protection and it's a life of saying, no, I'm going to be known because this act it creates intimacy. Intimacy with people, intimacy with God, and the byproduct is you're known. Moses, you know, Israel, God sees them. He hears their cry, right, when they're in Egypt. And then he comes, he raises up Moses, and he leads them, right? He parts the Red Sea, you know, all of a couple million, they say, cross the Red Sea on dry ground. They get into the desert. God leads them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. Then they get to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up in the mountain. And God creates this whole beautiful opportunity for intimacy. And Moses goes up onto the mountain. And it says when he came down, his face shined. The Shekinah glory. He sat face to face with God. And when he came down, his face shined. But when he came down to the people, it says in Exodus that they actually were afraid of the glory that they saw on Moses' face. And instead of inquiring deeper into it, they said, Moses, like, you got to put a veil over your face because that, I don't know what to do with that. What that is, is that what they saw Moses Seeing the glory of the Lord shine through Moses' face, what it actually did is it exposed their lack. When Jordan was actually in college, he, he really caught hunger for the Lord and he would come home. And I found myself in the same position as the Israelites. Jordan would come home with these testimonies of how he was hearing God's voice, having dreams, seeing healings. The more of God, per se. 
And every time he came home, I knew I was going to be confronted with the same exact decision. His experiences were offending me, and they were exposing my lack of intimacy with God, and it was exposing my lack of relationship. And I had two options. I always knew I could turn towards it and engage, and I could allow it to expose me so that I could actually share that with him and my mom and with God and actually be known or I could turn the other way and say, no, justify, yeah, Jordan's just a really deep soul. I'm kind of like a more peppy, like I like hanging out with friends. Jordan likes reading his Bible at home. Like, <laughs> like, like I, that, that's just not me. Just not me. I'm not, I'm not called to that stuff. Like I'm just, I'm more like, I just like to have, you know, I love Jesus, but I like to have fun. I had two choices every single time. His encounters were exposing my lack of intimacy. And I could make the choice and allow to be people to know me in that, or I could self-protect and walk the other way. My favorite one in the Bible, I think, you know, Samuel was the prophet. Once Israel gets into the promised land, you know, they, they just cross the Jordan River. God stopped the river. They walk across. They carry the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River on dry ground. They walk. I think the first city they take is Jericho. And then they take, you know, the land of the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Philistines. And city by city they're going. And they're conquering city by city. Right? King by king they're slaying. I mean, honestly, throughout that time. And they finally established Israel as a nation. They're in the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. God just led them out of slavery in Egypt, parted the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness for 40 years. Finally, the day came where they crossed the Jordan. They came into the promised land. They get established as a nation. They've seen the glory of God released in magnificent ways. And the Israelites come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, anoint us a king. We want a king, Samuel. Like all those other nations around us that we just slayed, we want a king. And Samuel's like, no, no. Like, you don't want a king. And God's like, no, you don't want a king. I want to be your king. But then the people come back and say, no, we want a king. Because what, who's going to lead us when the nations around us come back and they come and encircle our city? Who's going to rally the troops? Who's going to be the leader? Who's going to be the one that delivers us? We just slayed all these nations. You know they're coming back at us. We need a king. We want to be like those other nations, the ones we just conquered. Give us a king. Whereas God sets his beautiful context to let the lack there of a king be an opportunity for the Israelites to have intimacy with him and to trust him to be their king and the controller of their destiny. They had a beautiful opportunity for that in the midst of situations like that to get on their knees and to come before the Lord and to let him know their fears. But they chose to self-protect and they said, no. Give us a king. And finally, Samuel's like, no, I don't want to give him a king, God. And God's like, just give him a, give him a king. If that's what they want, give him a king. If they don't want to choose intimacy, if they don't want to be known by me, like that's my heart's cry, but give them a king. I'm not a controlling dictator. I give choice. 
and they choose to self-protect. And, and Samuel's like, I'll give you a king, but the kings are going to oppress you. The kings are going to lead you in wickedness. The kings are going to make this nation fall. And sure enough, I mean, I swear half this Bible is about the Israelites, Assyria, exile, Babylon, exile. This king comes in, leads them astray. This king, oh, good king, but then a wicked king, and then another wicked king, and then the wicked king's son, and then it, on and on. And how, how would the story have been different? How much... Could this have looked completely different if they would have been like, no, we're going to let you be our king. And it's unknown and it's not in control, but we're actually going to not self-protect. And we're going to allow you to be the king of our nation and the king of our lives in a way that's really uncomfortable. How might the story have changed? Adam and Eve didn't self-protect. If, if the Israelites, if the Israelites would have looked at what Moses was seeing on the mountaintop face to face with God and said, realize that God wasn't a God of partiality, that God wasn't just doing this for Moses. God's heart was to be with his people. What if they would have taken the posture of Moses? The Bible says he was the humblest of men, even though he wrote it himself. <laughs> but what if they would have taken that posture? What if they wouldn't have self-protected? What if they'd allowed Moses' intimacy with the Lord to actually expose them in their lack thereof and lead them into a place of, of knowing God and being known by him in a deeper capacity? What if Israel would have been like, Moses, teach us how to go up that mountain? Rather than put that veil in your face and let's go this way, what if they'd been, Moses, teach us. You know, you did something. You, you know, when you, left, when you left Egypt and you went and you were the flock where you were the shepherd of your father-in-law's flock and you walked throughout the Sinai Peninsula and you had the burning bush encounter. What if they would have taken that posture and been like, Moses, like you have something with God that we don't, but like teach us how to get up that mountain. Teach us how to get into that tent of the presence. Joshua, it says jo Moses would leave the tent of presence and Joshua would stay. What if Israel would have taken the, the posture of, no, like, I'll go as low as it takes, but teach me how to get into that tent. I want to sit face to face like you do, Moses. I want my face to shine the way it sh yours shines. Self-protection, I think, completely changed, kind of marks this Bible. However, I think now the vehicle that which God wants to create the opportunity for intimacy in our lives and, for us to be, and ultimately for us to be known is different. I don't think it's the lack of a king. I don't see, think it's seeing a leader on the mountaintop. I think there's a different way. You know, I always wonder why he adopted us. Why didn't he just set us free from sin? Why didn't he just, like, redeem our lives, set us free, make a way back to God, give us heaven? Everything that he did. But, like, why adopt on top of it? Why did we need to be called sons and daughters? What does that mean? How does that change things? You know, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 46, it talks about if a prince takes a piece of his inheritance and he gives it to a slave, it's considered his year of liberty. Why didn't God just do that? That's what Jesus did. He took all of his inheritance, the kingdom of heaven, right? Died on the cross, the prince of peace. The prince took his inheritance, gave it to us set us free, 
It was our year of liberty. However, then he went a step further, and then he adopted us as sons and daughters. And it says in Galatians that our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. Why this language? I think, and I would propose, that the reason he adopts us and the reason that he calls himself Father is because the vehicle in which God now desires to cultivate intimacy in your life, both with himself and with others, is not through walking through a garden or the lack there of a king, but I think it's through family. I think God wants to make you known through family now. I think that's the vehicle. He adopted us. That's the vehicle which he wants to make you known. God wants to make you known through family. And family is him and family is the people around you. The people that you do life with. Whether that's immediate blood family or not. I think that's the vehicle which he wants to use to give you the opportunity to cultivate intimacy and be known. You know, I, uh, I'm the poster boy for self-protection, hands down. <laughs> That's the third, the third service in a row she said that. I'm the poster boy. When I was like eight or nine years old, my mom, we were at family camp up in Cascade, and there was like a breakout session, and we were, I don't know, she was trying to get us to go deep, as always, and trying to get us to open up. And, and I was resistant, and Jordan was even more resistant. <laughs> but uh, she looked at me, and she said, Riley, the day that I feel like you open up to me, I'll give you a $100 bill. I was like, shoot, like, you're putting some incentive behind this now. Before I had none, you're getting smarter. <laughs> I chased that $100 bill for a long time. I would give her, like, the slightest little sliver of my heart, the tiniest little bit, and I'd say, well, can I have my $100 now? She'd be like, Nope. Nope, nope. And it wasn't until I was about 16 or 17 that I realized how much self-protection I had played in my life, how much detriment it had caused in my life. You know, I got to a point, uh, I was 16 years old, and I decided I didn't need people. That's the best way to describe it. I, I, I didn't think I needed people. I didn't think I needed to be known. I loved God. God was like here, like I knew he was there, but like it's like I don't know what you're doing right now. And I surely knew that I didn't need people. And so I got to a point where I was so over life just in general and didn't, didn't need people that my mom and dad were at, call, uh, at college or were visiting colleges with Jordan down in San Diego. And my grandparents were staying with us. And at about midnight, I got on the computer, and I Googled the farthest place I could go from Boise, Idaho without a passport. And there's two things that popped up. One was Puerto Rico, and the next one was Guam. <laughs> so I learned a little bit. I didn't realize you could go there without a passport. Um, <laughs> I didn't have one. And so that was at about probably midnight. Um, and I said, enough is enough. I don't, I don't need people. Why would I stay here? And so at 2 o'clock in the morning, 1.30 in the morning, who knows, I walk downstairs to my parents' bedroom where my grandparents are sleeping. I go into the bathroom, and I grab my grandpa's wallet, and I 
quickly write down his credit card number. I go back upstairs, get on kayak.com, search for a one-way ticket to Guam, and uh, bought the ticket at about 2.33 in the morning, and at 5.30, I was at the Boise Airport, parked my Jeep at the Chevron, left a note in my bedroom at home, said, I'm leaving, don't look for me, left no indication of where I was going, uh, <laughs> got to the, the front desk at, at the Boise Airport, and the lady's like, Guam, like, why are you going to Guam? And I had, like, through my research, I had found out there was a Navy base there. I was like, oh, my mom works in the Navy, so I'm going to visit her. The lady's like, oh, all right, here's your ticket. <laughs> so I get on the plane, and I remember I got on the plane, and I, like, took a picture of the clouds right when we took off. And I was like, yep, I'm, I don't need people. And I took the battery out of my phone because I thought I was like, you know, I'd seen the spy movies, and I was like, I didn't want them to track me, <laughs> right? Took the battery out of my little phone. I <laughs> put it in the backseat pocket on the airplane and was like, heck, yeah, it's a new day. It didn't last terribly long. <laughs> I ended up getting arrested in Portland and put in a, a juvenile detention center for like 12 hours before my parents flew to get me. Funny, my funniest, um, to me, the funniest part of the story, at least in the moment, I think I thought it was the funniest. At the, at the juvenile detention center, I wasn't quite in, like, the full-fledged, like, you're booked in here type thing. It was more of like a holding cell. It's a nice way to put it. And, uh, but there's, like, these two guys at the front desk, kind of like Simone-looking guys, and they were like, brother, brother, like, we heard you were trying to run away to Guam. I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, how'd you know that? He's like, we're from Guam. <laughs> We've been wanting to go back for so long, but those tickets are just so expensive. And I'm like, yeah, ask my grandpa. It was like 1500 bucks. <laughs> I was like, well, what, what are the odds? But anyways, I got to a point where my mom and dad flew into Portland, and they, you know, they got me out, and I didn't care. Punish me. I, I, I don't care. I, I I was so shut off. Um, so I just tell that to kind of show context that that's kind of the place I was at. And I'm hesitant to even share that because it wasn't like in a moment I got to a place where I was so self-protected that I did that. It were these several like micro decisions for several years, little ones that when my mom would pursue me, I would shut down, little ones that when people would hurt me, I'd shut down, little ones where I'd make vows in my mind that I'm not going to let people into my heart, little ones that I'd say, oh, God's distant, that I'm not going to let him in, that I'm going to be safe, that I'm going to protect myself. And so it was a cultivation up to, a, to, to that day. It wasn't like one day I'm just like, yep, my heart's shut off. No one will know me. But it was about a month or two after that experience that my parents were actually going on a trip to Mexico, and things were rough at the time. And my mom called at like 5 o'clock in the morning. Jordan had just taken him to the airport and was on his way back. And she had called my cell phone, and I woke up super grumpy at like 5 o'clock. And I, I still remember the desperation in her voice. And she was like, my dad had gotten out like cash for Mexico in one of those bank envelopes. And they were at the airport, and they couldn't find it. And my mom was like, Riley, I need you to find this money. And the desperation in her voice was like, I need you to find this money because I need this trip. And I remember just kind of like, okay, whatever, like, where's the money? So I kind of like get up, and I'm, she's like, go look in your dad's office, go look in the living room. 
go look everywhere. And then she goes, and then go look in the fireplace. Like, your, my dad was, like, paying bills and then, like, throwing the bills in the fireplace after he paid them. So he's like, she's like, go look in the fireplace. And it's, like, a wood-burning, like, big old fireplace. And I'm like, okay. Like, so I look in all those places. I look at the fireplace. It's, I mean, tons of ashes. I'm like, Mom, it's nowhere here. Like, I don't know what you want me to do, but, like, I don't know where it's at. And she just, she just says, like, stop, Riley. She's like, I need you to open up your heart to God and let him show you where this money is. And at first I'm like, no. Like, <laughs> open up to God to, like, show me where this money is. Like, Mom, it's not here. Like, sorry, don't know what to tell you. And <laughs> she was like, Riley, I need you to open up your heart and let God show you where this money is. Finally, after her plea, I was like, all right, fine. I don't know what this is. You know, she's like, pray this prayer after me. I'm like, okay, pray a prayer. So she's like, God, I open up my heart to you. Show me where this money is. And I half-heartedly, probably not really believing what I'm saying, not really believing that, like, God's going to show me where this money is, not even believing, like, I don't even know where I was at. Can I open up my heart to you so that you can show me? I, I wasn't, I just said it. And I said, God, I open up my heart to you. And I think part of me meant it because I heard the desperation in her voice. I said, God, oh, I open up my heart to you. Will you show me where this money is? Right after I say it out loud, my mom goes, it's in the fireplace. Go back to the fireplace. <laughs> sure enough, I walk back to the fireplace, and on top of all the ashes is an envelope with a little bit of fray on the side full of, I mean, not full of, but like, with like $100 bills in it. And I like don't know what to think about it in the moment. I like grab it in the midst of all the ashes, and I like get in the car and I just speed to the airport and like give it to my mom. It wasn't what happened then, but it was the next day. I was at church with just my brother and a friend. I didn't raise my hand in church. I'd never, I loved the Lord, but like I didn't know. I was in, I was in survival mode. And during worship, the presence of God came on me in such a way that I fell on the ground and I just started weeping. I hadn't cried in like six or eight months. And I fell on the ground, and I just began to cry, and I heard the voice of God in a way I had never heard his voice up until that moment. And over and over, he said to me, Riley Allen Verner, I'm with you, and you're going to be okay. Riley Allen Verner, I'm with you, and you're going to be okay. And it kept reverberating in the back of my head. And I laid there, and I just wept. I wept, and something broke off me. And I think I had that, I, I, I give all credit to that encounter with God because the day before, I literally simply just said, I open up my heart to you. I made this like tiny little prayer that was like, God, I'm not gonna self-protect for like half a second here, but like only like 20% because I really don't know if I'm believing what I'm praying. It's crazy what he can take if we just give him a tiny bit and how he can bring transformation to my life. But the most important thing about this is that I came to a bigger decision about a week later. I had that encounter on a Sunday, and about a week later when my mom came back, I knew I was coming at a crossroads. I knew I had a decision to make. I could self-protect and say, this is just me and God, I don't need people. Or I knew that I could open up and I could let her in and I could be known. And the day she came back, she, I was out shooting hoops and 
my heart was just fluttering because so badly I wanted to tell her what happened, but so badly I didn't because I didn't want to let anybody in. And she came outside and I knew in a moment, I knew I had to tell her. And so I opened up and I said, mom, here's where I've been at. You don't even know where I've been at. I've been in the pit of despair. But like I had this encounter with God and like he met me and I tasted hope for the first time. And like, mom, I, like, I think I'm gonna make it. And can I tell you that like, that encounter with God was amazing, but if I wouldn't have chosen to open up to my mom in that moment, I think I would have stayed where I was at. The encounter was powerful and God was all over it, but honestly, when I allowed my mom to see in and to be known and for her to know me in that capacity and know where I had been and known what I just encountered, can I tell you that that was the, the difference maker in my life? The reality is, is that we self-protect because we don't want to be in pain. I don't want to be in pain. There was a lot of years of pain. I self-protect because I was in survival. I didn't want to experience any more pain. My heart couldn't handle it. So in those moments of where I fell into sin, I just sewed fig leaves up and covered myself because the thought of actually exposing myself was just painful. When Jordan would come home from college, I'd shut myself off and I'd say, no, like that's just Jordan. Because I didn't want it to reveal the lack of intimacy and my lack of desire for the Lord. I wanted to be the king of my own life. I didn't trust God. I didn't trust people. But what I didn't re realize is that I had like this deep longing to be known. And it's not just me, it's all of us. We all have this deep longing to be known. But we don't wanna be in pain. But we have the decision to make. We can't be known if we're not vulnerable. We can't be known without intimacy. Intimacy takes vulnerability. When God created man, he knew it. That's why he put a tree, two trees in the garden. Why did he put choice? There couldn't have been love. There couldn't have been actually knowing each other apart from choice. So we come to a crossroads. I come to a crossroads on a daily basis. Is, am I gonna self-protect? Am I gonna isolate myself because I don't wanna be the potential of pain? Or am I gonna step forward and am I allow people to know me and God to know me? Because the reality is, is that your need to be known far outweighs any fear you have of rejection. Your need to be known far outweighs any fear you have of someone abandoning you. Your need to be known is so much greater than your fears. And that's the abundant life, I believe. That's the abundant life is when you choose, say, no, I'm not gonna sew figs together and cover myself. That no, I'm not gonna demand a king. When you make that decision, you actually come into a place of being known. And so it doesn't even matter what's going on circumstantially around you, whether you're on the mountaintop or the valley. 
You can live this life of abundant joy and hope and peace because people know you and God knows you because you have intimacy in your life. It's not situational, but it's a choice that we have to make day in and day out because it's the small things that lead to the big things. Marriages don't become disconnected overnight. It's a slow fade. Fathers and sons don't become disconnected overnight. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade of a son protect, self-protecting and a father self-protecting. Marriages, it's a slow fade because one's hurt the other and the other has hurt the other and so they don't wanna be hurt again so they make these little microcosms of self-protection that then get thicker and thicker and thicker to the point where they don't even connect, they're in different bedrooms. It's a slow fade. And so that's why it has to be like this daily choice. I can tell you that I like come and face with this on a daily basis. I'm married now. I can't self-protect. For the sake of my children, I can't self-protect. I can't not let Sammy into my heart. For the sake of my kids, not only just us, but for them. I have to be known. You have to be known. And so we can't live this life of self-protection. How different the story would be if they didn't self-protect. And it's not that you have to let the whole world in, but you have to let some in. You have to let the ones in that have the right to be in. You can't live on an island. We weren't made for it. We were made for family. And family has intimacy. And family knows each other. And family's known by God. So if you're running from intimacy, if you're running from intimacy with God, if you're running from intimacy with people, in the same way that Adam and Eve covered themselves and the Israelites demanded a king, you're telling God that his ways are lower than your ways. And you're robbing yourselves of being known in the life of